Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. In this episode, we will explore why the Lord may be restoring the church to a first-century in-home gathering model. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, we read, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. For the first three centuries, early Christians did not construct church buildings. They gathered in homes. And many also remained connected with their synagogues and assembled at the temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed. The oldest archaeological discovery of a Christian place of worship is a house called Domus Ecclesia, excavated in Dura Europus, which is in modern-day Syria. And it's believed to have been founded around 232 AD. Now, one likely reason the early church met in homes was for convenience, given that extended family members generally all lived together. But the most probable reason was the need for safety due to persecution. In John chapter 20, we read, When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. It was not until the second half of the third century A.D., that the first halls or buildings of Christian worship, called Alla Ecclesia, were constructed. Now, many of these were destroyed during the Diocletianic persecution in 303 AD. This was the last and most severe persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Persecution essentially ended with Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 AD, proclaiming religious tolerance. His reunited empire spanned most of Europe, Asia Minor, North Africa, and the Middle East, allowing for large-scale and more elaborate church construction to begin. Between the 11th and 14th centuries, numerous smaller parish and cathedral-style churches were constructed. From 1000 to 1200, the Romanesque style became popular, and Gothic architecture emerged around 1140 AD in France. The Reformation in the 15th and 16th centuries simplified the Gothic style, leading to the construction of hall churches. These new Protestant churches favored a building design where the parishioner's line of sight was directed toward the pulpit and attendees could be as close as possible to the altar. The Baroque style, introduced in Italy around 1575, also evolved during this period. From there, it spread throughout the European colonies. Domes and capitals became highly decorated with fresco paintings and sprawling floral ornamentation. And this ornate style continued well into the Rococo era of the 1720s. As the churches grew in power and affluence, their buildings became monuments to their wealth and political influence. These evolutionary changes were not accidental. They actually align with amillennial theology that was systemized by St. Augustine in the 4th century AD. 
Augustine was originally premillennial, but later changed his views claiming the doctrine was carnal. Amillennialism, which is also called gilegorism, rejects the idea of a future millennium in which Christ will physically reign on the earth for 1,000 years. Instead, they see the thousand years in the book of Revelation as allegoric or symbolic. They also believe that the millennium has begun and is identical to the church age, and they believe that Christ's presence reign is spiritual. At the end of the church age, Christ will return in the final judgment to establish a permanent kingdom in a new heaven and earth. Postmillennialism, like amillennialism, believes that the millennium occurs before Jesus returns. Yet they believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Postmillennialism was a dominant belief among American Protestants who promoted the reform movements of the 1850s. And it has become one of the critical tenets of Christian Reconstructionism, a fundamental Calvinist theology that advocates for the restoration of biblical laws. How Christians view the relationship between Israel and the Church, the relevance of biblical prophecy to both, and the perceived order of eschatological events will determine their hermeneutical and exegetical opinions about the millennium. Many of these opinions began with an underlying assumption that the Church has replaced Israel as the new Israel. This viewpoint is called supersessionism, also known as replacement theology. And because biblical prophecy speaks so frequently of Israel's physical restoration within the present creation, amillennialism aligns with replacement theology. It spiritualizes biblical prophecies and God's future promises for Israel and applies them to the church and the New Jerusalem only. If amillennialism or postmillennialism is correct and the millennium has begun, it would seem fitting for the church to construct places of worship that glorify God and solidify his kingdom here on earth, even if only temporary. Since they believe the church has the authority to establish Christ's kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven, then our places of worship should epitomize God's wealth, economic providence, his legal and judicial authority, and his political influence over every nation, especially this one. This unbiblical way of thinking has led to contemporary, prosperity-centered, and kingdom-now theologies called dominionism and fostered Christian patriotism and nationalism, elevating the United States to somehow being on par with Israel. So it's not surprising that many Christians lack a biblical understanding of Christ's kingdom centered around the restoration of Israel and the Jewish people. And since biblical prophecies concerning the land promised to the descendants of Abraham are carnal, many Christians also overly spiritualize the future kingdom of God as relates to the land of Israel and the New Jerusalem. One sign of the end times is an apostate church. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. But Paul also said in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ was returning for a glorious church one not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she should be holy and without blemish. Holy and unblemished implies that Christ's remnant church is sanctified, set apart from the world, and not actively participating in its sins. So therefore, until the rapture, as we read in Scripture, the wheat and tares will grow together. Yeshua said in Matthew 13, Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Gathering the tares into bundles suggests that apostate Christians will join other apostates. And Yeshua warned us, saying in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, living a life set apart from the world will bring condemnation and persecution, likely also from apostate Christians. But this persecution will birth a glorious remnant church that will be both holy and unblemished. Paul said in Romans 8, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So once again, we read that sanctification will bring persecution, and persecution will bring God's purification and refinement to a remnant of his people, those of us who choose to follow the narrow and challenging path in this life. Paul said in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Per Scripture, this last day church will be severely persecuted, and for the necessity of protection and safety, like the early Christians, I believe this remnant church will likely return to gathering in homes, not cathedral buildings. And one more thing. A house demonstrates to the world that the church is a family, and the hallmark of a functional family is love. Yeshua said in John 13, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So having said all this, please do not think that I wish for persecution to fall on any person. I'm just simply acknowledging what Christ has already prophetically spoken concerning the end of the age and the birth pangs and tribulations that we will encounter. When the COVID pandemic began, many churches were forced to close their doors or limit assembly. And the idea for home church came to me as I was reminded of a government-sponsored community program developed years ago in California that organized citizens to prepare for local emergencies. The idea was simple. During an emergency, your neighbors become your closest family. If the government can motivate neighbors to prepare for an emergency, why couldn't the church do the same? And what if we combine the benefits of emergency preparedness with the need for a localized church gathering? Well, then maybe our neighbors would suddenly become our closest family. One of the challenges with contemporary Christianity is the necessity to convince people to visit a church building to hear the gospel. But studies reveal that a majority of Christians are uncomfortable inviting anyone to church. 
Additionally, many people have an aversion to attending church, which creates additional barriers to introducing them to the gospel. But meeting with a small group of neighbors in a home is far less intimidating and even comforting. It's an informal and conversational, family-like setting. And one more thought. Existing churches can quickly establish neighborhood clusters from their member databases. They can map their congregants and can commission lay pastors and small group leaders along with co-leaders to organize neighborhood church meetings. The meetings can be held at one location or rotated to different homes. Home churches could also network to create what I like to call a home church network or a micro-church cluster. If a church has a live stream of their service, the church clusters could meet during that time to listen to the sermon. The groups would be praying for each other and could even lead their own worship times. And because the people attending would be our neighbors, everyone would know who to turn to if a real emergency arose. Again, our neighbors would suddenly become our closest family. And per scriptural instruction, home churches should allow two or three people to share encouraging God stories and personal testimonies each week. Paul gave us this example in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He said, Wherever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three people speak, and let the others judge. But if anyone is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. We are fortunate that at present we are not experiencing severe persecution in this nation. But conditions could change quickly and without much warning. So I think it's important that churches use godly wisdom and prepare and even proactively set up their home church network before greater challenges arrive. Our church buildings and assembly halls should remain places for large-scale evangelism. But discipleship most effectively occurs in small, intimate environments. With the proper leadership, home church clusters would be perfect for this. I know the Lord is drawing the church back to its biblical foundation with correct theologies and a proper understanding of His kingdom. And I believe the Lord will likely restore the home church as in the early days of Christianity. If we take the time to explore church history, we realize that false theologies and ideologies have emerged about church building construction. And yet we know the church is not a building. No, the church is a family. It's God's family. A remnant from every nation, chosen, sanctified, and set apart from the world. And yet our kingdom is not of this world. So therefore, we must focus on the mission that God has given us, which is to make disciples of every nation that will reign with Christ for eternity, and not to construct buildings that will rust or decay within a century. Just as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, 
that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.